Greetings, mate. This is Heirloom Radio, coming to you from the seacoast of New Hampshire, and I'm your host, John Lovering. On this track of Heirloom Radio, I present what is considered to be a horror radio program. There were basically two types of radio programming that I listened to at night while I hunkered down under the covers of my bed and carefully tuned my Radio Shack pre-transistor small tube portable radio with a 67.5 volt battery that I remember cost about $10 and that was back around 1960 so that was expensive and it never lasted that long. While I diverge from my topic, uh, the the two types of radio nighttime programming that I listened to as a preteen boy were baseball games and radio horror programs when I could find them programs that featured gruesome sound effects and some sort of beast turned loose coming at me from my radio speaker. The horror programming turned loose in my imagination allowed me to be haunted by some creature following in, following me into my room and seeking me out while I hid under the covers with my radio and flashlight. And it was damn scary. In 1963, Eric Bowersfield, who was the director of Berkeley's Drama and Literature Department of radio station KPFAFM for 31 years, produced a horror program that scared the bejesus out of me. Bowersfield titled his series The Black Mass. What was really scary was him as an actor, his voice using it as if he had gone mad, coming back from the dead, frothing at the mouth, talking like a woman, totally losing it, much like the famed actor of film and a considerable amount of radio, the one and only Peter Lorre. Some of the shows were incredibly frightening, others not so much, but you never knew until you heard it. Bowersfield created masterful productions of Poe's Telltale Heart and Lovecraft's The Rats in the Walls, stories from Bram Stoker, Herman Melville, Ambrose Bierce, and Lord Dunsany. On this track, you're going to hear how the Black Mass works. It's an episode from January 7, 1965, entitled The Jolly Corner, and it's adapted from the short story by Henry James, published in the magazine The English Review of December 1908. It is a ghost story, one of Henry James' most noted ghost stories. The Jolly Corner describes the adventures of one Spencer Bryden, as he prowls the now empty New York house where he grew up, a place he called the Jolly Corner. Spencer encounters a, what he calls a sensation more complex than that that was not consistent at all with sanity. He finds himself confronting a ghost who overpowers him, changing his personality. Was Spencer hurt? Insane? Or was the ghost the one who suffered the most? The ghost with the most? Let's find out. As Eric Bowersfield presents The Black Mass, The Jolly Corner, originally broadcast, as I mentioned, January 1st, 1965. My name is John Lovering, and I thank you for your visit to Heirloom Radio, a different kind of oldies program.
the most haunting of our ghosts are often not those of the dead and departed, but those immortal ones that represent our own unlived life. It was this kind of spectre that Henry James struggled with in some of his later and more complex stories. Tonight, we bring you one of his last and most intriguing tales. Here is The Jolly Corner by Henry James. I know it's only a detail, Denver, but let's stick to the plan. No harm so far, but it's good we caught it in time. All right. We'll meet in the morning for another look. All right, then. Careful there, Alice. I'm sorry I had to stop, but you know you have to keep watch. I'm impressed. Impressed? The way you stood up. Think of it. All these years, you may have neglected your real gift. <laughs> Building skyscrapers? Yes. If you had stayed in America, you may have discovered your real genius. <laughs> Adding more awful architecture to all this, this bigness. Do you find it all really more awful now? Now ah, they were ugly enough then, I remember. But with some charm. Now, proportions and values are upside down. The modern is monstrous. But you're here, and that's what you think of everything. <laughs> everything. That's too much. I dodge the question. Everything has somehow been a surprise. But even so, my thoughts are almost altogether about something that concerns only myself. Your property? Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. I had to come back eventually to look after my property. This new monster is only a renovation. The apartment has flourished all along. I I've managed to live for more than 30 years in Europe on the leases. My back turned. Now, now I've had no trouble catching on. Climbing ladders, learning about materials, looking wise. It's actually been charming, amusing, catching on to it this way. Well, you're going to be well off for it, too. Astonishingly much, I should say. You can turn your back again. Well, I don't know yet. You mean you'll live here, in one of your marble towers? Oh, never. I have my other property, you know. Oh, yes, the old place, you mean, on the corner. Mm -hmm. I wondered if you'd kept it. You kept it? Oh, yes, I've kept it. It's for that, I think, really, that I returned. I yielded to a humour I've had. It hasn't changed. No. I've passed now and again. It's still as it was, except that it's empty. The corner has changed, I'm afraid. Ah, yes, the corner. The jolly corner. I called it that, and it was. I was very fond of it as a child. The happy years growing up there. Ah, finally, after my brothers died, the property came wholly into my hands. Yes, I suppose it was to see my house on the jolly corner again, as much as anything that I came back. Are we walking there now? I was hoping you'd show me. Uh, do you mind if we stop for a moment? Uh, would you like to see it? Oh, of course. Is it really empty all this while? Entirely. Except for Mrs Muldoon, good woman who lives in the neighbourhood, she comes by every day to open windows and dust and sweep. Oh, it must have been her I saw once when I passed. Uh, no doubt. 
Do you pass often? Oh, now and then, to get to the downtown. You see? Empty. Empty. Vacancy reigns from top to bottom. Oh, who's there? Is it you, Mr. Bryden? Uh, yes, it's me, Mrs. Muldoon. I, I brought a visitor. Oh, you gave me a start, you did. Ma'am? Uh, this is Miss Staverton. Hello, Mrs. Muldoon. Uh, don't let us interrupt, Mrs. Muldoon. We're just going to look about. There's no trouble, Mr. Bryden. I know you usually come later in the day, uh, but let me push back some of the shutters and... Let in some light. Oh, to show you, sir, how little there is to see, I'm afraid. The rooms are enormous. Uh, too large, I'm afraid, for the times. For me. Unless you were a billionaire. Ah, yes. Had I but stayed at home and invented skyscrapers. The dining room is off there. Uh, but if you will, you can look down here later. It's my noonday round before leaving, and I can open up for you upstairs. Oh, don't bother about us, Mrs. Muldoon. We'll just walk about. Oh, no bother at all, Mr. Bryden. I'm only too glad to oblige. There's only one request I hope you never make of me, sir. Ah, well, and what's that? Oh, oh, well, if you should wish for any reason to come in after dark, I would just have to tell you, if you please, mm -hmm. that you must ask it to someone else. You mean there are things to see, then? It's what you might see, miss. And I put it to you that no lady could be expected to like scraping up to them top stories in the evil hours, could she? Evil hours? What with the gas and electricity off, they're evil enough. I've sometimes been late enough to need a taper, and it's been a gruesome march through all them grey rooms. I can imagine it, Mrs Muldoon. What do you imagine? Ghosts? <laughs> Do you imagine my jolly corner is haunted? Well, there'd be nothing to fear. Eh, maybe. But I'm not of a mind to find that out, Mr. Bryden. Now, I'll go ahead and open things and, and leave you to your own. Then I must go off if you'll not be needing anything. Well, thanks, Mrs. Muldoon. I'll lock up when we leave. Oh, uh, ma'am. There used to be a fine view here of the river. There you can still see a slice of it between the buildings. Ten stories higher, you'd have your view again. I suppose that's what they want. To pull this place to pieces and start up. Ah, it's exactly what they want. They're at me daily. They can't for their lives understand a man's liability to decent feelings. There are, after all, other values. In short, you're to make so good a thing of your skyscraper that those ill-gotten gains will afford you to be sentimental here. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. Uh, but is it sentimental? No, it's more. It searches me as I wander about. Oh, you prowl? Mere sight of the walls, shapes of the rooms, sound of the floors. This old silver-plated knob. I hold it and feel the slightest pressure of other palms. Dead ones now. Ah, seventy years of the past. The ashes of my youth still afloat in the air. Well, I thought I had forgotten. But you can live here again if you decide to stay on. I might have lived here. I might have put in here all these years. Then everything would have been different enough. Ah, but that's another matter. And I can't now. 
down. So the beauty of it, of my perversity, my refusal to tear it down, is the total absence of a reason. If there were reason, it would have to be a matter of dollars. So we'll have none, not the ghost of one. Are you very sure that the ghost of one doesn't, sir? Oh, ghosts, ghosts. Of course the place must swarm with them. I should be ashamed of it if it didn't. Poor Mrs Muldoon's right, and it's why I haven't asked her to do more than look in. Well, if it were only furnished and lived in. Ah, for me it is lived in. For me it is furnished. Ah, yes. Well, this old elm lives on. What a charming garden. The memory is so alive. So alive. Mother. Father. My dear sister, that was her room up there with the balcony. I've seen her a thousand times sitting there, looking down, calling. Ah, my brothers. They're all gone, simply having run their course. Having met their end one way or another. And what would have become of you? Ah, Yes. All things come back to that. What might I have been? What course would I have run? <laughs> an absurd, but I must admit, an intense speculation. A morbid obsession? What would it have made of me? What? I keep forever thinking about it. Idiotically, how could I possibly know? Well, you see what it has made of others. Uh, something, something. Would it have made something of me? Well, you're something else. Oh, Alice. I'm nothing. Nothing. Nothing at all. You followed your own preference. That's something. Yes, Europe. Europe running off. I liked it. I loved it. If I'd only the least doubt, I would have stuck it out here. But I was too young, 27. That small, tight bud transplanted to a climate that blighted him once and for all. You wonder about the flower. So do I. I've been wondering these several weeks. I believe in the flower. It would have been quite splendid. Quite huge and monstrous. Ah, monstrous. Monstrous above all. And I imagine by the same stroke quite hideous and offensive. You don't believe that. Ah. If you did, you wouldn't wonder. You'd know and that would be enough for you. What you feel... And what I feel for you is that you, you'd have had power. Ah, you'd have liked me that way. How should I not have liked you? I see, you'd have liked me, preferred me, a billionaire. How should I not have liked you? Well, I know at least what I am. I've not been edifying. I believe I'm thought in a hundred quarters to have been barely decent. I followed strange paths and worshipped strange gods. It must have come to you again and again. In fact, you've admitted as much. That I was leading all these 30 years a selfish, frivolous, scandalous life. <sighs> and you see what it has made of me. You see what it has made of me? Oh, you're a person whom nothing could have altered. You were born to be what you are, anywhere, anyway. You've the perfection nothing else could have blighted. <sighs> if I hadn't left. Don't you see how I'd never have waited till now? The great thing to see seems to me to be that it hasn't spoiled anything. It hasn't spoiled your being here at last. It hasn't spoiled this. 
It, it hasn't spoiled your speaking or... Ah, do you believe then that I am as good as I might have been? Oh, no, far from it. But I don't care. You mean that I'm good enough? Will you believe it if I say so? I mean, will you let that settle the question for you? There's an idea. Some idea which, however absurd, I cannot yet bargain away. Oh, you see, you don't care either. But very differently. You don't care for anything but yourself. Exactly, exactly. But he isn't myself. He's the just so totally other person. But I do want to see him. And I can. And I shall. Yes. You shall. Well, in any case, I've seen him. You? I've seen him in a dream. Oh, a dream. But twice. I saw him as I see you now. You've dreamed the same dream? Twice over. The very same. <laughs> you dream about me at that rate? Ah, about him. Ah. Then you know all about him. Well, what's the wretch like? I'll tell you sometime. Some other time. It was after that visit with Alice that there was most of a virtue for me in surrender to my obsession. I sometimes came twice in the 24 hours. I projected myself all day, straight over the bristling line of hard, unconscious heads and into the other, the real, the waiting life. The moments I liked best were those of gathering dusk of the short autumn twilight. The time which again and again I found myself hoping most. Listening. Feeling my attention, never before so fine, on the pulse of the great, vague place. I always caught the effect of the steel point of my stick on the old marble of the hall pavement, on the black and white squares, where I played once, long ago. A dim reverberating tinkle from the depths of the house, of the past of that mystical other world that might have flourished for me had I not abandoned it. I'd put my stick noiselessly away in a corner, then feel the place in the lightness of some great glass bowl, all precious concave crystal set delicately humming by the play of a moist finger round its edge. The concave crystal held this mystical other world, 
and the murmur of its rim was the sigh there, the scarce, audible, pathetic wail of all the baffled, forsworn possibilities. What I did was to wake them. They were shy, all but unappeasably shy, but they weren't really sinister. At least, not before they had taken the form I so yearned to make them take. The form I hunted, hunted. Hunted from room to room, story to story. Long after midnight, with my glimmering light, moving it slowly, holding it high. And he, oh, he would roam restlessly too. When I stopped, I could hear him. He was cautious, shifty. His evasion laying on me finally a rigor to which nothing in my life has been comparable. No pleasure as fine as this tension. No sport demanding the patience and nerve of this stalking a creature more subtle, more formidable than any beast of the forest. I'd place my light on some mantel shelf and step back into a shelter or shade as if a rock or tree, holding my breath. Living in the joy of the instant. With habit and repetition, I gained to an extraordinary degree the power to penetrate the distances, the darkness of corners, to resolve back into their innocence, the treacheries of uncertain light, the evil-looking forms taken in the gloom by mere shadows, by accidents of the air, by shifting effects of perspective. And putting down my light, I could still wander on without it, pass into other rooms, see my way, visually project a comparative clearness. It made me feel this acquired faculty like some monstrous stealthy cat. I wondered if I would have glared at these moments with large shining yellow eyes and what it would be for my poor heart-pressed alter ego to be confronted with such a creature. Apparitions. Oh, apparitions. People have been in terror of apparitions, but who had ever before so turned the tables and become himself in the apparitional world an incalculable terror? I liked the open shutters. I opened everywhere those Mrs. Muldoon had closed, closing them as carefully afterwards. I liked, and above all in the upper rooms, the sense of the hard silver of the autumn stars through the window panes, the flare of the street lamps below. <laughs> that was human, actual, social. The world I had lived in. That light supported me mostly in the rooms to the front and the prolonged side though it failed me in the central shades and the part at the back. There the house was the very jungle of my prey. 
The place was more subdivided there. Small rooms for servants had been multiplied. Nooks and corners abounded. And there was a, a back staircase over which I leaned many a time to look far down. My whole perception was open to cultivation, bringing it to perfection by practice. Grown already so fine that I could hear here. Well, there was something. Something unmistakable. I felt it as I walked. I was being kept in sight, tracked at a distance, so that I should appear less arrogantly to myself merely to pursue. I'd make abrupt turns, wheel about, stop, seek it out. I had kept vistas clear, doors open, so that in the darkness my imagination might almost achieve it, project it, project into it. A refinement, a beauty. I had known fifty times the start of perception that had afterwards dropped, had fifty times gasped, there, there. under some fond, brief hallucination. But he'd retreat, retreat. Though he retreated more reluctantly as time went on. Then, finally, one night, at the top among the more intricate rooms, he was there. There, waiting, not falling back, waiting at the far end of a series of rooms I had just passed through, waiting, worked up finally to anger, ready to fight. Thus we stood, ah, both terror and, and what? Rejoicing. Terror, but also relief that in that other form I could inspire such, such fear. Thus we were one and the same. The door between the rooms was open, and from a second another opened to a third. But there the chain ended. The third door, which had only moments before been indubitably opened, had subsequently been closed. I stood before it. The question of danger loomed, and with it as never before the question of courage, for what I knew the blank face of the door to say was, show us how much you have. Show us how much you have. It stared, glared back at me with that challenge, and he, he behind it, shut up, defiant, turning the situation. Oh, discretion. <laughs> discretion. It could take its time. But at the threshold, this hunger so close to being met, it was amazing, but also exquisite and rare, that insistence should have quite dropped from me. Discretion, discretion, could it save the situation? I wouldn't touch the door, I wouldn't touch it, I'd only wait a little to show, to prove that I wouldn't. I listened, as if there was something to hear. And this attitude between us, while it lasted, was its own communication. If you won't, 
Then good I spare you. I give up. We both should have suffered. I retire, never to try again. So rest forever. Rest and let me. I turned away. I turned away. I turned away and retraced my steps. And finally, at the other side of the house, I did what I had never done at these hours. I opened half a casement and let in the air of the night. Spell was now broken, and it didn't matter. The empty street. <laughs> its other life, so marked even by the great lamplit vacancy, was within call, within touch. High above I watched, as for some comforting common fact, some vulgar human note, a scavenger, a thief, some night bird I would have blessed, positively welcomed that sign of life. But nothing. Oh, nothing. A discretion even there. Not the least stir of the great grim hush. The life of the town was itself discreet, under a spell. Great builded voids. Had they ever spoken so little to any need of the spirit? Great crowded stillnesses with its sinister mask. Oh, it was this large collective negation that proved to me at last what a night I had made of it. thought, of course, of retracing my steps. There was, after all, the whole rest of the house to traverse for me to leave safely. Safely. Unless the door had meanwhile opened and he was once more at large and in possession. But if I saw the door open, if I saw it, it would send me straight to this window and make my way uncontrollably, insanely, fatally to the street. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't look. That hideous chance I avert only by recoiling in time from assurance. Ah, assurance. Ah, assurance, assurance. I have the whole house now to deal with. My instinct is all for mildness, but I ran, ran through the rooms, the passages, to... To finally the top of the stairs. Mildness. Mildness, yes, I, I take it all with no rush. No rush, but quite steadily. Steadily. The house seems immense. The scale of space inordinate. They might come in now, the builders, the destroyers, they might come as soon as they want. Do you hear all your rooms, all your steps and flights? The wreckers will have you. The wreckers will have you a splintered pile. 
descended as if to the bottom of the sea. The last flight to the lower hall. Oh, oh, there, the marble floor. The squares, black and white, of my childhood. Only to cross these once more to the door to safety. To safety. The vestibule gaped wide. The inner door had been thrown far back. That one I had closed. Oh, at last, he, he, to me, to touch, to know. Oh, the penumbra, dense and dark, was the virtual screen of a figure which stood in it as still as some image erect in a niche. Or as some black visored sentinel guarding a treasure. A treasure. My liberation. Oh, my supreme defeat. Grey, glimmering margin. Central vagueness diminishing, taking form, taking form. It was somebody, somebody, something. What made the face dim was a pair of raised hands that covered it, buried it. The head was bent. The figure wore evening dress of gleaming silk lappet and white linen, pearl buttons, gold watch guard. Polished shoes. A pair of thick eyeglasses hung from a string. My revulsion had become immense. He hides his face from seeing. Standing there for the achieved, the enjoyed, the triumphant life, yet he can't bear to be faced. Wasn't the proof in the covering hands? The hands. So spread that I could see that one of the hands had lost two fingers. They were reduced to stumps as if accidentally shot away. But even so, the face was guarded, guarded and saved. Coward, coward, show yourself, show yourself. Ah. No, no, it isn't mine, it isn't me. It is hideous, monstrous, it fits me at no point. Imposter! Imposter! The face is that of a stranger. It approaches, comes upon me nearer. He is evil, odious, blatant and vulgar. He advances as for aggression and I, I, sick with the force of his shock, fall back under this life larger than my own, this rage of personality under which my own collapses, turns to darkness, gives away, is gone, 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 gone. Mr. Brighton. Mr. Brighton. Oh, ma'am. He's coming round, I think. Mr. Brighton, sir. You gave uh, us a scare, you did. Mrs. Muldoon, he'll be all right. Uh, would you fix something? Oh, oh yes, ma'am. I'll go to my place for some tea now or broth. Some broth would be better now. I'll only be a few moments uh, now. Mrs. Muldoon, don't bother. She's gone. She'll be right back. Alice. Don't move. Lie here a moment. We found you here, in front of the vestibule. You had fallen. Oh, where was I? 
We thought you were dead. <laughs> it must have been that I was. Oh, yes, I can only have died. You brought me to life. How? And now I shall keep you. Oh, keep me. Keep me. Keep me, Alice. But how did you know to find me? I, I was uneasy. You were to have come. Do you remember? And you sent no word. Oh, yes, I remember. I was still out there in my strange darkness. Where was it? What was it? I must have stayed there so long. So you knew of this, of what has happened? I've known that you've been coming here. Known? Well, I believed it after our talk here. <laughs> that I'd persist. That, that you'd see him. Ah, but I didn't. There's somebody, some beast that I brought to bay, but it is not me. No, thank heaven, it's not you. Of course, it wasn't to have been. But it was, it was that. I was to have known myself. I, too, saw you. Saw me? Saw him. It, it might have been at the same moment. In my dream again, he came back to me. I knew it for a sign that he had come to you. He didn't come to me. You came to yourself. Now, yes, I've come to myself, thanks to you. But this brute, this brute with his awful face, a black stranger, he's none of me, even as I might have been. Isn't the whole point that you'd have been different? Uh, as different as that. Haven't you wanted to know exactly how different? But anyway, you appeared to me. Like him? Yes, a black stranger. And how did you know it was I? He told me you had seen him. You liked him. You liked him, that horror. I could have. He was no horror. I had accepted him. Accepted? I didn't disown him. I knew him. You, my dear, so cruelly didn't. You saw only his difference. Well, he was less dreadful to me. It may have pleased him that I pitied him. Pity? He, he's been unhappy, ravaged. And haven't I been unhappy? Am I not ravaged? Ah, I, I don't say I like him better. But he's grim, he's worn. <laughs> Things have happened to him. His glasses, I recognise the kind for his poor ruined sight and his poor right hand. And he has a million a year. He has a million a year. But he hasn't you. And he isn't you. He isn't you. Mr. Bryden. Oh, sir, you're all right again, I see. Uh, now, shall I bring the tea to you here, or can you come outside? We'll go outside, Mrs. Muldoon. We're all right now. Go ahead, Mrs. Muldoon. We'll follow.
That was The Jolly Corner by Henry James. The technical production for tonight's broadcast was by John Whiting. The music was specially composed for this program by Peter Winkler and performed by bassoonist Bill Kaufman. The part of Alice Staverton was played by Pat Franklin. The part of Spencer Bryden and the adaptation for radio were by your host of the Black Mass, Eric Bowersfeld. And now, good night.